Welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. We are in our third week of our series in Genesis called In the Beginning. And this week, Chris shares some foundational truths found in Genesis chapter 3 about how to get your life right. Now, when it feels like more and more our world is coming unglued, that might seem impossible. But let's listen in and see what Chris has to say. Well, hey, folks, welcome back to week three of our series in Genesis. Uh, If you're just joining us, we're at the very beginning of this series. We're going to be in this for the next 45 weeks or something like that. So let me strongly encourage you to come along for the entire journey. And if you missed the last two weeks, go check those out online or you can download the podcast. But catch up with those two. They're kind of foundational for where we are this week. Uh, And this week, we're going to be in chapter 3 of Genesis. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 3, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time today. But before we do, uh, I I want to explain why we're doing this series. You know, the the story of Genesis is the story of our Genesis, the, the origin story for humanity, and it's your origin story as well. Now, It was written not as a comprehensive history of creation. It's a kind of a 60,000-foot view of our origin, but it was very, very important. Moses writes the book of Genesis as a way to give the people of Israel a foundation to build their entire culture and society on. They had been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. They had lost their national identity, but more importantly, they had lost where they had come from. They, um, and they needed to get back in touch with that because the story that they live will determine how they live. And it's the same for you. The story you're living determines how you will ultimately live. Um, And it just turns out that their origin story is our origin story as well. You know, today in our culture, the the origin story that is that is uh, foisted upon us is is one of uh, kind of random chance. Like we're all a big accident. The, the the universe was nothing, and then everything just kind of appeared. There was an explosion, and everything that that is appeared out of nothing. That's that's kind of the story that we're told, and that from that all that matter, there were some some uh, atoms that bumped into each other and they turned into to molecules and then the molecules bumped into each other and they turned into to like a living cell of some sort and they mutated and they became something else and, and on and on and on until you have you and me and, and everybody that you see and we've got, you know, eyes and mouths and the ability and capacity to love and everything else, but it was all a big accident. Now, like I said, the story you're living determines how you live. If, if that's the story that you're living, then there is no real eternal significance or consequence to your life. You might as well just, you know, enjoy the ride, live it up, pursue power, because if you love power, pursue power. If you love pleasure, pursue pleasure. You don't have to worry about the impact that you have on the people around you. Just go for it. It's about you because there is no real significance to the other people or consequence or even morality that rules that. If you love money, go after money and you can cheat and steal and lie. For tomorrow, you'll be dead, they'll be dead. Who cares? 
The ends justify the means. Now, the problem with living that story is experience tells us that it's a lie. You know, personally, spiritually, you live that way, you're going to end up bankrupt, morally and spiritually bankrupt. And you see that when people follow that through to its natural conclusion. In societies, we see that as well. If a society decides to live out that story, for example, in the last century, the Soviet Union was an atheistic um, culture, and, and, and communist China, atheistic culture, lived out of this origin story. It goes back to where we start. All we are is random chance and protoplasm, right? You know, that's, that's all we are. And so, so what ends up happening when a culture lives that out is it leads to totalitarian government, the, the powerful, a few powerful people ruling over everyone else. You know, and again, the ends justify the means. It's, it's tyranny, it's depotism, it, and, and really what it ends up being is hell on earth. If you read about the Soviet Union, you read about communist China, it's hell on earth. It's, it's the powerful ruling over the weak. It's killing whoever you need to kill to hold on to your power. Between those two empires over, uh, over the last century, they killed over 100 million people just trying to hold on to power. They, they put, sent them to Siberia and froze them to death. They starved them to death. They were brutal. And to this day, China continues to be. There's 25 million people starving to death today in Shanghai. There's there are uh, Uyghur Muslims uh, who are persecuted in their country because they're different from, from the people who are in charge and have the power. And so they, they're in concentration camps, millions of them, being sterilized and abused and treated as slaves. That's where that story ends up. When you live that story, that's where it ends up. And it has personal impact as well, as I said, because ultimately, if you follow that through on a personal level, you'll end up spiritually bankrupt, empty, and hopeless, right? But if you live this story, this story that that begins with, in the beginning, God created, God designed, then there's a whole different outcome. Because if God created and God designed, then there's a designer, and there is a design to live, and, and, and if there's a designer and there's a design to live out, the designer's going to know best what that design is. You know, a couple weeks ago, I decided that I was going to change the oil uh, or the transmission fluid, which was really oil, in my riding lawnmower. Well, it's a big job. I had to jack the, the lawnmower up. I had to t- take everything apart to drop the whole transmission out of the lawnmower. And as I was doing that, you know, piece by piece, taking out cotter pins, taking off bolts, I get to this place where there's a pulley and and there's a, a belt around the pulley and then there's a fan attached to the top of the pulley. And I could not get the belt over top of the fan. So there's this little tool or this little clip, it's called a a snap ring that holds all that together. And so if you've ever worked with snap rings, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a snap pair of snap ring pliers that will, will typically just pop that ring right off. But I didn't have a pair of snap ring pliers. 
and so as, a, as a, a good redneck, I went into the garage and I found two little tools with pointy ends that would fit down into the holes in the snap ring, or where the snap ring is and tried to pull it apart myself without the snap ring pliers. And I spent probably... 15 or 20 minutes trying different ways, different angles, busting my knuckles all up, trying to get the snap ring off, and it just wasn't going to happen because it was designed to work with snap ring pliers. So finally, what I did is I called my friend Scott, who lives in the neighborhood, and said, hey, Scott, do you have snap ring pliers? And he was like, yeah, I do, actually. Come get them. So I went over and got them, came back, and I had that snap ring off in two seconds. And I boop, because that's the way it was designed to work by the designer of the tractor and the designer of snap rings. It was pretty cool. So I actually got it done, got it all put together, and uh, the tractor runs, which is great. If in the beginning God created, if God is our designer, then... Living by his design will make life work better. But that requires faith. Because faith is trusting God, the designer, enough to obey him, enough to follow his teachings, which we find in the Bible, and his principles, which we find in the Bible, trusting him enough to follow those, even when they don't make sense to us, even when we don't understand them completely, because a lot of his commands are counterintuitive. But one of the things that I found out through this life and the experience of this life is that when you do follow them, life works better. You're not busting your knuckles all up. And I'll say this, when you live by his design, when you lean into that story, it not only has a personal impact and life goes better, but it has a societal impact. You know, we live in the United States of America, and it's very easy to, to juxtapose the U USA with Russia and China. You know, the United States, you know, love it or hate it, whatever your opinion is, and what I'm about to say might be controversial to you, but I challenge you to listen to what I'm saying. The USA is, has been the freest country in the history of the world. It's also been the most prosperous country in the history of the world. Now, it's not been a perfect country. We've made our mistakes. We've, we've elected leaders who have done horrible things at times. But when you look back at the founding of our country, the people who made up that group of founding fathers who sat down and put a constitution together, they were living out of this story that God created that he had the, the, the roadmap for life. They, they built our constitution on this idea, which we're about to see, that man has been corrupted and man is, inter is, um, is by very nature sinful and that power will corrupt them. So they built a government, the first one in the history of the world that was designed, the constitution, to limit the power of the government so that the people could be free. 
But they built that because of what they knew from Scripture. They built and, and, and they built into the Constitution. Again, not a perfect document. I'm not a Constitution worshiper. But they built into our Constitution and our founding documents the principles that are built on the story that we're talking about today. And because of that, we went on to become the freest country in the history of the world, the most prosperous country in the history of the world, a country that was willing to fight a war to end slavery, an institution that had existed since the beginning of the world, an institution that was just normal, that was just life. From the beginning of time, human beings had been enslaved and property, and this country fights a war to end that. Sheds, sheds the blood of our, of our kids to end slavery. It, um, you know, we spearheaded universities and hospitals and protecting the rights of people. We be, went on to become the most generous country in the history of the world. And it all goes back to what story we're living. See, the story you're living will determine how you live. Now, this is true for a, a people, but this is also true for a per, you know, per person. There's a personal impact. When you live this story, there's purpose, there's meaning, there's, there's motivation to restrain your passions and desires so that you don't run over your neighbors because there's a morality that's bigger than you. And there's an eternal, internal freedom and peace that comes as well. Now, everything in our culture is, is working against that story. They're, we're trying to remove God from our story, out of our schools, out of the public square, trying to d- disconnect our, the next generations from, from our history. And, and I really think that's why I find myself and, and so many other people asking the question, who can we trust? Because people are lying and they don't care. What, what, what narrative is true? And why does it feel like our world is coming unglued? Because it is. Because we are unpegging from the story that gives us life. The story that is ultimately, I believe, true. Now, week one, Chris Dew laid out that God made everything and said it was good. And then he made man and he made woman and put them in the garden and said, this is very good. And there's this paradise that's described. And then Chris left us with this question. What happened? What went wrong? Why is everything broken when we look around? And he said, you're going to have to wait till week three to find out. Well, welcome to week three. And that's what we're going to look at today. So as I said, Genesis chapter three, very beginning of the book, I encourage you to to write in the Bible. If you have a paper Bible, underline, take notes, all of that. And I'm actually going to start in chapter 2 and verse 15. There's a few verses that set up chapter 3. And this is what it says in verse 15, chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God gave us the ability to choose obedience or disobedience right out of the block. I mean, it was designed into that 
first part of creation. Like, we could screw this up. We could choose to disobey God. And the question is, why? Why wouldn't he just make it so that we couldn't screw it up and we'd all still be in the garden and everything would be great? And here's the reason why. Because God designed us in his image to be in a relationship with him. And guys, if there is not a choice in a relationship, it's not a relationship. It's a, it's a, a master-slave environment, not a friendship, not an intimate relationship. If there's no choice, there's no relationship. You know, I can design a robot and program a robot, but I can't have a meaningful relationship with a robot. It has no choice. There had to be a choice. We could choose to trust God or we could choose to trust Satan. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 3, which says this, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, let's stop right there, the serpent. Now, theologians believe that the serpent is a manifestation of Satan, whether it was Satan and he showed up looking like a serpent or Satan, the spirit of Satan, the spirit of evil that, that embodied or, or uh, possessed a, a serpent, I don't know. But before the fall, it sounds like serpents might have had legs and could talk, or at least this one could. It wouldn't have been a huge surprise to Eve. They're still discovering new animals every day, probably. And so now they have a talking serpent with legs. I don't know. Seems strange to us, but it was, probably wasn't all that strange to them. But what it does tell me is the temptation comes in the strangest forms. Then that's point number two. Temptation comes in the strangest forms, but the lies are always the same. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, God hadn't said that. He's twisting God's words, and he's calling into question the goodness of God. Now, Eve even corrects him. She's like, God didn't say we must not eat from any tree. There's just one. And that brings me to the four lies that the enemy tends to use to corrupt our hearts, to get us thinking in the wrong direction and disobeying God. Lie number one is this, God is holding out on you. You know, you're so restricted. God, God is, is, is keeping the best from you. And at verse number two, it says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Actually, you know, God's given us free reign here. We can, we can eat from any tree. But, you know, now that you mention it, God did say that you, we must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You know, Eve's like, now that you mention it, you know, it really didn't bother me before because we had every tree in the garden to eat from but that one. But now that you mention, and what did Satan say? He said, you can't eat from any of the trees. But, but, but now that you mention there's that one that's really starting to bother me. And God said it was for our own good, but this is starting to feel kind of restrictive. God isn't looking out for your best interest. He's holding out on you. That's lie number one. Well, the enemy then says in verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Which brings me to line number two. 
the enemy is like, God lied to you. God is a liar. The one who created you and loves you and put you in this paradise, the one who shows up and walks with you in the cool of the day, the one who provides for you, yeah, he's lying to you. He doesn't want you to experience the fullness of life. He's he's holding out on you and he's lying to you. And then Satan says, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, they already knew good. They lived in paradise. Life was good. I didn't even think they would have had a T-shirt, except they were naked. But life was good. But now they would know evil, and not intellectually, but experientially. They would know the pain of evil, the direct impact of evil, the consequences of evil. Oh, you will know evil. But he didn't spin it that way. But that's what was about to come. Which brings me to lie number three, which is life is better on your terms. That's what the enemy said. Life will be better on your terms. You need to take matters into your own hands because life will be better if you live it on your terms, not God's. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. I imagine the serpent walked up to the tree, grabbed it, had to, I don't think it was an apple tree. Quite honestly, apples are too good to, to have been the problem. It must have been a Brussels sprout tree or something like that. But I imagine he walked up to it, grabbed it, picked it, bit into it, and she's watching, and she's like, well, he didn't die. I mean, and, you know, he's a talking serpent. He seems kind of smart, so it's good for, for wisdom. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I think I think she was thinking literal death. And God was thinking something else. You know, I I tell my kids, don't do drugs or you'll die. Right? <laughs> don't do drugs or you'll die. I mean, you could say that to anybody. And, and physically, eventually, drugs will kill you. With a fentanyl crisis going on right now, it could kill you the first time. You, you could die. I mean, there's a real risk of that. But typically, using drugs doesn't kill you the first time. But it puts you on the road to death. And over time, Drugs, if you continue to go back to them, will rob from you all the things that matter in this life. And eventually, it, they will kill you physically too. You know, I can go and cheat on my spouse and I will probably, likely, will not die at that point. But my relationship with my spouse will begin to die at that point. Intimacy will be will be jacked up at that point. Which brings me to lie number four. You won't surely die, he says. You won't surely die. In verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, God wasn't talking about physical death. He was talking about spiritual death. Spiritual death is this, at its core, is separation from God. At its core, it's, it's, 
it's that, that disruption of intimacy with him that we were created for. We will never be fully alive when we are separated from God because we were created to be in that relationship with God. As long as there is a separation there, there will be something that aches inside our lives. And at that moment that they took a bite from that fruit, something changed. They, they felt something different in their relationship with one another and in their relationship with God. And for the very first time, human beings felt shame. They did. In verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So now they're hiding from God. They're sewing together fig leaves and covering their nakedness. They are experiencing shame. And guys, shame is the consequence of disobedience. When we disobey God, we experience shame. It's the consequence of sin in our lives. Before this first act of disobedience, there was no shame. They were naked and unashamed. There was, there was no shame before one another. They, they had uninterrupted intimacy and relationship. And this is all about relationships, right? Relationships with one another, relationships with God. Shame jacks all that up. And now they have shame before God such that they're hiding in the garden. You know, we know this is true. You know, when a, when a kid is disobedient, the dynamic of the relationship changes between the parent and the child. It does. And if it keeps going, it starts to change pretty significantly. That's shame. Verse 9 says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God knew the only thing that was going to mess this up was that. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And you see how this goes? It's the blame game. Well, the woman did it. The woman says, well, the serpent did it. And they just keep pointing fingers. Guys, blame is how we deal with shame. It's the normal human reaction. When we do something that we know is wrong and there is shame about that, the first thing that we will do, our knee-jerk reaction as human beings is, it's not my fault. I didn't know. He tricked me. And we won't own it. We'll blame somebody else. But the antidote to this that you can choose and that I can choose and that we see throughout the rest of Scripture and especially through the teachings of Jesus is that it is not until we own the blame, till we accept the blame that is due us that we can be set free from our shame. It's not until we own the blame that we can be set free from, from our shame. This is such a powerful principle. This is one of the principles we find in the story. You've got to own it. But they weren't. It's her fault. It's his fault. And so on and so forth. 
Well, that brings me to point five, which is this. The consequences of sin are real. Guys, the world unravels from here. Sin comes into our world. It comes into our race, the human race, and wreaks havoc. And the, and the Lord, it says in verse 14, so the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. So he's talking about, you know, the relationship between serpents and people. Not very good. There's like a handful of herpetologists that really like snakes, but most people hate snakes, right? But then he pivots and he, he says something very specific. He says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And again, theologians believe that this specific line, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, is a is a prophetic statement pointing forward in the future to Jesus. That on Good Friday, when he was crucified, the serpent struck his heel. And when he rose from the dead on Easter morning, he crushed the head of Satan. He, he won victory over the serpent, so to speak. What well, says the woman... To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Check, that's, that happens. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, it's, there's a lot of confusion around that particular verse. It's like, well, what is he saying there? And I like how the New Living Translation put it. I think it, it clarifies this a little bit. What it says is, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. What's he saying here? That one of the consequences of sin is that in this marriage relationship that was made beautifully and perfectly and there was harmony in the relationship, now there's going to be a power struggle. And if you're married, you know that this exists. Now, we can do what we can do to fight against that power struggle, but it is our sinful human nature to want to control one another and be in charge. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.21 teaches us that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The ideal is mutual submission, that we outserve, outlove one another, that we submit to one another in a marriage relationship. That's the ideal. But in us is this sin nature that wants to be in control, and she wants to control him, and he wants to dominate, and, and that is what ends up causing friction in the marriage relationship. Now, we can choose to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and we should. That's one of the counterintuitive ways that the Creator designed things to work and that we can find in His Word. And when we do, you will have an amazing marriage. Well, in verse 17, it says to Adam, he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. But it's going to be painful. It's going to be toil. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. In the garden, Adam was placed in the garden to work the garden, but it was like, it was pretty easy. It was like we walk out the back door and you pick a papaya. I didn't have to do much for that. You know, when I was in 
uh, grad school, my cousin and I took a month and we went to Hawaii, the island of Kauai, which is a tropical paradise, just a beautiful spot. I had a friend that lived there and he invited me to come. So I came and I stayed for a month and we camped out in his backyard. But we would walk out the back of the tent and literally pick a papaya or a banana or a pineapple. And they just kind of grew there. It was amazing. He says, but now you're going to toil to eat. You're going to make your way through this life by the sweat of your brow. Work was designed to be a joy. Now it's going to be work. And, um, you know, it's kind of like the idea of if you had a garden and no weeds would grow in the garden, you just walk out and pick stuff and it would grow. That's that gardening versus gardening and having to go out and pick weeds every day. It's a very different situation. And guys, to this day, these things are true. To this day, we have inherited the consequences of their sin. We call it original sin because it was the original sin. And we've not only inherited the consequences of their sin, we've inherited the, the, their very sin nature. These, this, these propensities inhabit us. It's, it, at Easter, I said it was like a virus, Sin is like a virus. It's infected every person in the human race. I looked up viruses that are spread from parents to ch- children, and, and the, the, most, the, most, or the first one that came up was syphilis. And I've just wanted to say syphilis in church for a long time, so syphilis. So it's like syphilis. It's the gift that keeps on giving, parent to child, person to person. It spreads throughout an entire population, and that is what has happened with this virus of sin to the point that all of us are infected. All of us, all of humanity is chronically ill with sin. And to add on top of that, we choose it as well. We choose to go our own way to say, God, I think you're holding out on me. I can do it better than you can. And we buy the lie. And we look around and back to Chris Dew's question from from week one of this series, what went wrong? Well, this is what went wrong. All the pain and the suffering, the wars, the injustices, the brutality. It all comes back to this. And when we choose to give ourselves over to that sin and that sin nature, it just spins out of control. But you know, God had a plan to fix this mess. It's not like God was happy about all this. He made us to love us, to be in a relationship with us. And just like me, if one of my kids went off the rails and, and, and started messing their life up, I wouldn't stop loving them. He's never stopped loving us. And he had a plan to fix, fix it. In verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Clothed them. God covered their shame. He realized they can't sew together fig They're going to be sewing together fig leaves every 10 minutes because they're just going to tear. And so he made clothing for them out of the skins of animals. He, he killed something to cover their shame. And we see this manifested in the Jewish sacrificial system that God will give to them later after they come out of slavery in Egypt where they have a sacrificial system where they 
where they sacrifice an animal for the sins of their their family. Now it's it's kind of temporary, and it's kind of like if you were had a loan, it would be an interest-only payment. You know, you're just paying on the interest. It's, it, it covers for the year or whatever, but but it covers their shame. But God had a plan well beyond that. His plan was to send His only Son, who came, Jesus. He lived a sinless life because he was able to do that, because he was, in fact, God. And then he willingly laid his life down on a Roman cross to pay the debt of sin for you and me. And not just to cover our sin and our shame, but to wash it away completely. It's the kind of the difference between an interest-only uh, payment and paying off the principle. Jesus paid it all off. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was going to die to make the payment for sin in full. Well, in verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Now, this sounds like a punishment. I'm going to banish him from the Garden of Eden. There, there was a tree there called the Tree of Life, and if they ate from it, they would live forever. And I think that was the plan. Eventually, they were going to, they were going to, to find that tree, eat from it, and live forever. But God, in His mercy, said, no, we can't let that happen because now they are living with the degeneration of sin. They know evil experientially. And to live in that forever would be hell. You know, there's a reason that every time we, we bump into an, an eternal character, a, a, a vampire, or, you know, in uh, the Marvel Universe, um, Captain America looked like he was going to live forever. There's, there's a reason they're miserable. There's a reason that they grow evil and dark and lonely over time to the point in Endgame, Captain America uh, chooses to go back in time and, and undo what had been done so that he would age and eventually die because nobody wants to live forever, really, when you stop and think about it. Because in a sinful world, there's this compounding misery that happens. And God was like, we can't do that to them because that's what sin does to us. But God had a plan. God had a plan, a cure for the virus of sin. It was Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, he washed away our sin. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered death. He crushed the head of the serpent. He won the war for our souls. And now we sit, we live between, we live in the in-between, between when Jesus won the victory and when he is going to come back and make all things right again. But you know what is true about now? is that his sacrifice on the cross can wash away your sins, that you can have a relationship with your heavenly Father now in this life and in the next. In the meantime, our punishment has been paid. In the meantime, 
he has made a way back to him. And I want to challenge you, if you have not received the gift of his forgiveness, the washing away of your shame, you can do that today by placing your faith in Jesus. And I want to encourage you to take some time. Is take some time and do business with your creator. Invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, to come into your life and teach you how to live. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your salvation would come to everyone within the sound of my voice. Lord, that we would surrender our lives to you and that we would have enough faith to believe that you know the way of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.